Picture Bride, Chapter 29. Taro and Hannah sat in their stall waiting for the evening head count. How many, the head counter would ask, knocking at their door, and they would obligingly answer, two. It seems such foolishness, this counting of heads each morning and evening, as though any of them would try to escape. Where could they go if they did manage to climb out of the barbed wire enclosure? Their Japanese faces would trap them in a matter of minutes. Sometimes the boy next door would answer none, or 25, provoking the head counter into an ex heated exchange of words. I'm only doing my job, the head counter would shout angrily, and the boy would shout back, Ah, go soak your head. Hana would laugh softly. The boy was certainly rude, but she admired his spirit, for the head counter was arrogant and took himself far too seriously. At least the boy and his mother had maintained their sense of humor, which was more than could be said of many others in the camp. There had even been serious bickering over the election of a camp council, which permitted Hana and Taro to vote for the first time in America, an ironic privilege granted only because of their incarceration. Hana had been surprised at the ill-tempered arguments among the candidates for office. After the evening headcount, Hana and Taro often went for a walk around the track. It was like a reward, a release from their small cell after having had to rush back from supper to be in their stall to answer, too. No one minded the morning count, which came at six when everyone was still in bed, but the rush back for the evening count seemed an affront to their dignity. They could scarcely speak of human dignity, however, when the boundaries of their lives had already been forced into the space of a single horse stall. Let's go sit in the grandstand, Taro suggested as they started their evening walk. Again, I don't like to go near those guards. You don't have to look at them. We'll climb up into the stands and look out where we can see the hills. Taro liked climbing up to the highest seats where they could see the highway with its speeding cars, and beyond that, the coast range turned glorious mauves and blues by the sunset. Tonight, as they looked down on the racetrack from the grandstand, Hana saw Kinji Nishima walking with Sumiko Matosa. Look, Papa, she said, pointing, isn't that Sumiko and Kinji-shan? She was pleasantly surprised to hear Taro say, she's a little young for him, but she is a good person. She would make him a fine wife, and it's time he was married. Why, Papa, that's exactly what I was thinking myself, Hana said, delighted that Taro should have spoken of it first. And rummaging about in her pocket, she offered him a lifesaver so they might savor this pleasant thought together over a sweet. Before they could speak further of it, however, two church friends appeared to join them. They nodded their greetings and spoke of the beauty of the evening sky. Then engaging in the pastime endemic to camp, they traded the latest rumors. Have you heard the FBI are coming to camp? Yes. Do you know why? To search for contraband, radios, guns, Japanese books, maybe even sugar. Who knows? When? Maybe tomorrow? Maybe the next day? Taro felt a wave of apprehension as he thought of Dr. Kanita. I hope they're not coming to take anyone away, he said gravely. For several days, the rumor about the FBI search had fluttered through the camp. Hana heard it in the showers, in the latrine, in the washroom, and in every line in which she stood. The entire camp was growing uneasy, not because anyone had anything to hide, but simply because the whole idea seemed ominous and threatening. Then the official notice was issued and rumor became fact, as it often did. The day of the search, no one was to leave his quarters until an inspection was made. Hana and Tara waited all morning in their stall, but at noon there was still no sign of the inspectors. Do you think we can go eat lunch? Mrs. Matosa called from her stall. I'm sure it's all right if we have lunch, Hana said. Don't you think so, Papa? Taro was carving a handle for a dish container he had made for Hana. I suppose, he said absently, it really doesn't matter. I'm not hungry. Well, I am, Hana said, and you've got to eat too. The mess hall was teeming with new rumors. The FBI were turning the camp upside down. They were confiscating all radios. They had found a gun. They were molesting women. 
No one knew whether there was a crumb of truth to any of it, but the residents of Tanfran wallowed in a constant morass of half-truths and rumors. They amassed them, hoarded them, sifted them through the sleepless nights, and passed them on during the tedium of waiting in line. As they whiled away the long afternoon, Hannah told Taro of a new rumor she had begun to hear. They say we'll be sent somewhere to another state, Papa. Do you think we will? I don't know, Mama, but I have heard Idaho and Utah mentioned. Ah, uh, so far away. Tara wanted to be careful about giving Hannah any more easy assurances. He had been wrong about the entire uprooting, and he could be sure of nothing anymore. He considered for a moment the wisdom of sharing a faint hope he had been mulling alone on nights when sleep eluded him. Then he spoke. If we do get sent to Utah? Yes. What? It is possible our train might pass through Salt Lake City. And we could see Mary? That did cross my mind, Taro admitted. It's only a vague thought, Mama. But Taro grasped it eagerly. That would be so nice, she said thoughtfully. I would truly like to see our grandchild. Now that she had become a parent, Mary wrote more often, especially since Hannah and Taro had been sent to camp. She sent snapshots of little Lori, and when Hannah saw them, she could no longer deny her love for the small creature. At some moment, she did not know just when. Hannah found that she had forgiven Mary for everything. She no longer remembered many of the things Mary had done to hurt them. And she understood her daughter's need to be free. Now the faint possibility of seeing Mary and Lori eased a little, the dread of seeing California, of leaving California and everything that meant home to her. It was 3.30 and still the inspectors had not arrived at their stable. Everyone was growing jittery and uneasy. People moved in and out of their stalls, unable to leave, wondering, worrying, and passing on new rumors. The longer they waited, the more threatening the situation seemed. Papa, I must go to the latrine, Hannah said at last. Go then. But suppose they come while I'm here. Then they come, he said, glancing at her. If you must go, then you must go. Taking her soap dish and towel, Hannah hurried off. She had the terrible thought that the inspectors would appear the moment she left. When she came out of the washroom, it was exactly as she had feared. Their entire stable was surrounded by soldiers carrying guns mounted with bayonets. She hurried to one of them and tugged at his sleeve. I must get through, please. I live in the stable and the inspectors have come. The young guard looked at her with a hint of compassion, but he would not let her pass. Sorry, ma'am. We have orders not to let anyone pass until the inspection is over. But I live here. I have been waiting all day. Please. Hannah was frantic, but the soldiers were firm. She waited, standing for almost an hour, watching as three men went in and out of every stall. They didn't seem to be taking long. What were they doing? When at last the inspection was over, the soldiers marched off and Hannah ran back to her stall. Papa, the soldiers wouldn't let me come back. What did they do? What happened? I saw that they wouldn't let you through, Taro acknowledged. Then he told her that the men had been in the stall for less than two minutes. They just looked around, asked if I had any contraband, and when I said no, they left. That was all? Taro nodded. That was all. We waited all day just for that? Hannah sank onto the bench and held her hands over her face. Mama, are you crying? What are you crying for? Hannah didn't know herself whether she was weeping with rage or relief. I'm crying for the stupidity of it all, she cried out. And in the silent stable, she realized that her neighbors had heard her anguish. But she didn't care. There was no place to hide. There was no place to cry. They all shared their grief and anger and frustrations together.